welcome to the cast of Caught, where we talk all things related to the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. I'm your host, Rachel, and joining me is the other half of my quartet, the one and only or broken armed DJ. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, yeah. For those uh, you uh, tuning in today, um, I did get hit by a car Again. from last cast to this cast. Uh, Again. A cast. <laughs> I'm wearing a cast, so I, I think that works. Ooh, that's so meta. <laughs> but don't worry, I'm okay. Just uh, uh, fractured some bones. Uh, no big deal. Hit and run, got yelled at, and uh, they drove off. So Not only did you get hit and run, you got yelled at by the person that hit you. Yeah. Oh, um, my gosh. Only was, DJ. <laughs> I don't know anything about cars, but it was like um, sort of a muscly car. Mm. Uh, it, it looked like a new old version of some kind of like fancy Dodge. And, and the only reason I recognize Dodge is because its name is in the logo. <laughs> <laughs> But don't you at least get the satisfaction of knowing you put a big ass dent in it? Yeah, and it looked looked nicer, nicer esque of a car. Okay. I mean, it's hard to okay. tell these days. So yeah, um, I, there's a little satisfaction there. The main okay. satisfaction is that I, you know, didn't get brain damage or or something like that. That would that's uh, true. Otherwise, that's true. disabilitate me. Yes, that is true. But geez, DJ, I swear every day is an adventure in the the life of DJ. I never know Ooh. what I'm going to see show up on our Discord server. <laughs> <laughs> is it going to be a cute dog photo or DJ getting hit and run? Like, you just never know. <laughs> I drew a nice watch on my cast, too, so I can turn it around and tell the same time every day. I know. I, I wish we were nearby so I could sign it and be like, you know, keep in touch over the summer. Best friends forever. <laughs> Is that still a thing? Like, did people do that anymore? I'm sure know. little kids still do that, right? They must. I mean, like, that's the one good thing about breaking your arm is somebody will, everybody wants to sign your cast. I don't know. Right? The material they made my cast cast out of isn't very signable. It's like really got a lot of big holes in it. So I wonder Stupid if that trend science. is starting to disappear. Science ruins everything. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. All right. Awesome. Well, Fortunately, even with a busted arm, you can still podcast. So the plan for this episode is we're going to kick off the show with an in-depth conversation about Wizard and Glass, Part 3, Come Reap, Chapter 8, The Ashes. And then we'll close out the show with our listener question from the Facebook and the final episode of The Stand. Man, you aren't joking. (laughs) As I watch that, it's like... I called this. I called this. I called mm-hmm. this. Yeah. I totally called this. <laughs> you did. It was crazy. I was like, are you sure you haven't seen it yet? Because, yeah. Although there were some little twisty twists in there, but. Uh, yeah. Um, we'll, t- we'll, we'll talk we'll, about it when we get there. We'll, but, we'll like, get there. We'll get there. What a stinker, man. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So before we get into all that, though, DJ, can you please remind our listeners of what our spoiler policy is? Like a tall man with a baby face standing over you, we will scare you and let you know when the end is close. <laughs> I think that's how they quoted Shimi in there. Um, oh, there's gotcha. a there's a little weird verbiage where it's like a grown man with a baby's face. Yeah, and oh, I love you're Shimi. like, oh, poor Shimi. I love him so much. He's so great in this chapter. Regardless, guys, we'll let you know when the spoiler zone rolls in. And if there's any asides that we jump off to, uh, we'll give you a chance to escape first. Uh, yes. And watch out for those firecrackers. Yeah. Oh, yes. Although, book to good use, pro firecracker. Now, <laughs> when it's my neighbor, anti-firecracker. <laughs> when they're drinking till like four in the morning, oh, shooting uh, like the- uh, rockets at your house. 
We'll see what There's happens a lot in of, of uh, gender reveal and uh, birthday parties. Like, I think. Oh, jeez. Yeah, enough grumpy uh, grandma and grandpa here. I though. know, right? All right, All right so, on that note. Where did we leave off, DJ? We left off with the guys thrown in the clinker, uh, and it looks all doom and gloom. And they basically have their plan in place to get these guys convicted and possibly burned. And then we also got a nice little glimpse of Rhea and the ball. We find out that the ball has, in fact, been eating her to death. And (laughs) her stinky old butt jumps into (laughs) her uh, witch's wagon with runes and ancient symbols on it. And she gets tethered to a horse, and they drag her into town with the ball. So uh, that's where we left off. She looks pretty dirty from the description and is just... uh, Real gross representation of humanity. Yeah, yeah. Not, I mean, now her outsides are very much matching her insides. Well, and I, I don't know why I, I dream about this book now. Cause, well, probably because we spent so much time on it. But uh, <laughs> I was like, I was, I had this weird dream about Rhea, and I'm like, oh, for some reason, no, it wasn't, no, it wasn't dirty or anything. No, but, but it was still, like, you um, just, even a good dream about Rhea is a bad dream. It, it was. It was a weird dream because it was like, uh, do you ever watch Eon Flux? Yeah. Where they, for some reason in the cartoon Eon Flux, they always did those like weird perspectives where uh-huh. it was almost um, super wide angle and it would like yeah. get close to her face and then like yeah. zoom back out again. Yeah. And it it was like, that was my perspective of Rhea as she Ooh. was like looking around me. And I, I think That's in the horrible. dream, I was in the ball. And so it was just like oh. this gross face poking around and like changing angles and like a giant eye and then a giant nose. And then, oh, shit. And it was super weird. I woke that is up, super creepy. I love it. Woke up in a sweat and was like, whoa, what, what mm-hmm. was that? Like, uh, maybe I need to stop dreaming about Rhea. Yeah, dude. Yeah. We've been looking into the abyss, and now the abyss is looking back. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit, that's a crazy dream. I can totally picture it, and it is upsetting. Yeah, it was just like five minutes of that. And I don't know how that guy, that little seed got planted or what, but um, uh, there there you go. Uh, that's so crazy. What a cool dream. Like, nightmare good sauce. Good mm. <laughs> <laughs> All, All right. right, let's. So, do this. Uh, move it, moving on. Um, uh, basically, we cut to Susan. Uh, she's sort of like riding back into into Hambury, and she sees this uh, dude Miguel, and he, apparently he's a mess. He's got his like um, hat in backwards, and like his uh, uh, serapa is like messed up and unkept, and he's like kind of out in the middle of the road praying. And she's so focused on him and his dishufflement that she nearly misses getting hit by somebody else who's also spurring along. And it seems as though all the passerbys are not paying any attention to Miguel. And mm-hmm. I wanted to stop for a second. And I know we're only like like 10 seconds in. but Who are you, Rachel? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? But um, Miguel, why? I should have already, I should have had this link in my head, but it escaped me. But there's got to be a reason why, like, Stephen King zoomed in on him, right? Well, we've seen Miguel a couple of times. He's someone at Seafront that greeted Shimi, that greeted Roland and the gang when they first got there. And he's kind of, we've seen he's kind of a little bit hoity-toity 
though he maybe shouldn't be. And so here he is in total disarray as compared to all the times we've seen him before. So what's the, is there significance to that? Cause like I, I was racking my brain trying to think like, cause Stephen King really makes a point of being like, look at this guy, this guy we've seen before. He's a mess. He's a wreck. And, and even the reference to the fact that um, it, uh, Susan seeing a boy who, you know, almost got run over being pulled mm-hmm. away mm-hmm. by his father. And then she thinks like, who's going to be Miguel's father. <laughs> right. I mean, I think that what we're trying to see or what King is showing us here is sort of the way that panic has really gripped Hambry and he's using Miguel and Susan as a proxy for what's going on with the psyche yeah. of the town. Yeah, like we see that Jonas's plan has been very successful because he wanted to rile up panic in order to be able, as we see later in the chapter, manipulate a mob into doing his dirty work, right? And I think we see that with Miguel, where where Susan is looking at Miguel and seeing how panicked he is and not even recognizing that she herself is not doing so great at this point, to the point where she's like gonna step out into traffic to help him without realizing that she's putting herself in the line of fire. So it tells us a little bit about her state of mind, but I also think there's some foreshadowing in this where we see Susan putting herself in dangerous situations without maybe understanding the risk or maybe not being as calm and in control as she thinks she is, which is something I think that's going to be important as we move forward because it's something she does again later in this chapter. That's a good segue right there, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she's sort of in this fever dream, uh, um, craze madness, not maybe madness isn't the term, but like definitely panicked. And she kind of flies back on her horse towards her house and as she's riding by the house where her dad and her and her aunt lived, her aunt comes like running out all Ooh, mangy boy. looking and, and so mangy, in fact, that for a moment, Susan sort of wheels back afraid that Rhea is coming at her. Mm-hmm. And like that paints an interesting picture of what has happened to her aunt over these last yes. so many days, because mm-hmm. there's been comments of her losing weight and looking less and less healthy and a little more panicked and and wild. And mm-hmm. this sort of feels like the culmination. Oh, and, yes. And what we come to find out is that uh, Aunt Cord has been digging in the back of the um, fire stove to pull in ashes into this box. And, and that's why her gloves are all black and nasty. Mm-hmm. And she comes running at Susan, you know, uh, screeching and howling about uh, how oh, one lover's so pretty. Mm. Yep, one lover's dead, and the other lover is uh, um, is tamed. I think is the term that mm-hmm. they use. And, and so, and, and Susan, like at first, it feels like she's sort of. Um, taken back and still stunned by the whole situation to begin with that Mm -hmm. she doesn't quite grasp what's going on with her aunt. But then her aunt reaches into this box and starts throwing black ash at her as she's condemning her for all these actions and and like Mm -hmm. demands that Susan tell her the truth about her and Roland's relationship. And Susan, every moment that they're interacting, Susan gets a little more clarity. And I almost, it almost feels like the, the clarity you get when you're angry or about to fight mm-hmm. with somebody like where you're hyper focused and you start to like rationally look at the problem. It's like so, combat focus. Yep, kinda. exactly. Yeah. yeah that's the, mm-hmm. that's the thing right there. And so she's throwing ashes at her and, and Susan's like at first is appalled and then she just takes it. 
and she takes it and she takes it and her aunt finally stops and Susan looks at her and like wipes some of the ash out of her hand and then wipes it under her face and is like, I forgive you. And it's like, Oh wait, 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 what? And like people are like kind of looking around watching this from a distance. Mm -hmm. Like, I guess this is a tradition of shaming someone. And when she does that, it like, it spins the circle on this thing, right? Right. It's the I'm just, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed in you. Of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and so when Susan does that, she mentions her father and Aunt Cord's involvement, and that even if she is going to wipe that off of her face, she's still going to have it in her heart for a long time to come in the future, and it's probably already in her heart and affecting her. And, and this is like the moment where like cord trembles and drops the box and then tries to seize susan and like grab the reins of the horse but fails and then at that moment susan actually rescues her aunt from falling and hurting herself Mm -hmm. and that moment is like the it's the crossover from when like an older person ends up becoming the younger person in the relationship and the younger person becomes the more seasoned person Mm -hmm. in that same relationship Mm-hmm. It, it, where Susan like sort of adults up and her aunt has fallen into hysteria, which is, you know, the opposite of adulting. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I've run through that pretty fast and I know you got stuff to say on this. So I'm going to. Yeah. I, there's definitely some symbols in here. I, right off the bat, we get, we get a, our bird metaphors continue into this chapter. So Susan is in this state of panic when she's writing out here and she's thinking about Roland and she thinks, you know, the brave little quartet they had made the night of the graveyard was broken. Three of its members jail with not long left to live. The last member lost and confused as crazy with terror as a bird in a barn. Like, okay. <laughs> so that's a, that's a perfect description of where Susan is at before she runs into her aunt and gets kind of grounded by seeing the madness that has really taken over her, her aunt. And like you said, there have been comparisons here where she thinks for a moment that that she's Rhea and and it really kind of drives home that over the course of this book we've watched two women be transformed Mm -hmm. by their obsessions yeah and that the bird thing is really interesting actually because um there's a moment too where uh Stephen King describes her brain as a bird flying around inside of the barn and not being able to find the window that it came in through yeah yeah and Uh, I, I don't know if that's in this section I thought that was with Rhea but it's still in the same like panicky method Right, and it really does paint a picture. You can totally, it's a great metaphor because you can really understand that feeling that she's feeling of just like that panic where you just have completely lost your sense of direction. What's ironic though is that King basically takes a point, makes a point here of saying had she stayed in the state of panic, things may have turned differently. So this whole scene, the way it plays out, you really see Susan kind of get the upper hand. Like you said, the, you know, the child becoming the the grown up and the older mm-hmm. person kind of becoming a child. But we know that even though in this moment, it's very satisfying that the end result is that this is one of the steps that is, she's taking towards, you know, the outcome, which we know is going to be bad for her because this is a tragic love story right but as we're saying yeah so we've been watching these women consumed by their obsessions what i think it's very appropriate that when cord she sees cord and she mistakes her for Rhea, that what this woman is doing is running outside to essentially be the role of a witch and to curse her with these ashes yeah just, that's it, true actually 
Yeah. And obviously ashes have a lot of symbolic meaning. You know, we're on the cusp of Reef Day. So we've been hearing about how these proxies for guilty parties were going to be burned ceremonial on the fire. And so I think there's definitely some foreshadowing here. Also, ashes tend to symbolize the end of something, you know, like ashes Mm -hmm. to ashes kind of things. And in this case, it kind of denotes the beginning of the end. In Susan's case, we can take we can kind of take from that that she what she's doing right now in this scene is she is as she's like mentally formulating this plan of what she's going to do about Roland and kind of taking control after having lost it for a moment that she's actually making the choices that are going to lead to how this book ends. And we know that because like I said, King essentially tells us so. Yeah. And there's also, I, I, I want to make sure we don't forget this because we're focusing on the first part, but we also get the big reveal that she's pregnant yeah. with child and is yeah. planning to uh marry um uh, uh Roland so right. that whole whole thing is like a more big salt deal. in the wound dude that's just more salt in the wound it's already so tragic what we're heading towards and now we know that she's actually pregnant Ugh. yeah yeah i know right yeah so we find out that she's pregnant um she also like announces her love and then there's this moment too where aunt cord is like and your marriage will be in the flame and ashes hmm Hmm. and like you you hear aunt cord say that and then stephen king paints it as sort of this like echo back moment in a movie you know where like uh, Mm -hmm. in the old timey movies from the 50s and 40s where when someone was like i did this wrong and then like the little like ghostly image of the person saying that thing pops Mm -hmm. up in the corner Mm -hmm. (laughs) it definitely felt like that so and I think you already covered the fact that it, it sort of like goes in with the stuffy guys and, and all that business. So, yes. uh, you know, but yeah, she's pregnant. And then there's also a moment too, uh, and this is later on, but I'm just going to call it out right now. So I don't forget it where she's like, and you thought Roland that I would just take your guns and, and ride back off to, <laughs> right. you know, Gilead. Like, who do you think I am? <laughs> and it's sort of like, well, he wants you to survive and he loves you. And you have chosen to save him, but at what cost? Right. Right. Well, I mean, I think it comes back to this thing with Miguel at the beginning, where she's putting herself in dangerous situations and not fully understanding the cost of, even though she thinks she knows the cost, like the, the, the stakes, she, she is putting herself in the line of fire in the way that she really doesn't understand. So after this crazy scene with Aunt Cord, uh, basically uh, Susan rolls rolls back out on her horse down the road, and lo and behold, she comes to another crowd of people marching about, <laughs> and uh, here we have Rhea being pulled behind uh, yeah. these big coffin hunters, and Rhea's just like... It's almost like that moment in um, The Exorcist where, like, the little girl says all the worst things that you could ever imagine. (laughs) And Rhea's like, take me to his bed. I'll pee in it and crap in it if I feel like it. That's where I belong. God damn. (laughs) And, and, like, it's so vile and gross that the big coffin hunters turn around and are just... uh, uh, Like, damn. Damn. That's nasty. Right. And this is I mean, if you think about it, this is the big coffin hunters who spent the entire book talking about how they want to pee on everything. But when Rhea says it, they're like, damn, stop. (laughs) Stop. It's gross. 
Yeah, and so like we just get this spectacle. Like Rhea doesn't even notice uh, Susan hiding off in the corner, and she's riding along, just like screaming away about what she's gonna do and and how she's gonna do it. And these guys have to tote her along, and it's almost like it's almost setting the mood for the unnerving nature of their relationship too with both Rhea and uh thorn's bed and, and that's the kind of grossness that they've gotten themselves into and like it sort of paints the relationship that the coffin hunters have bit off more than they can chew with their involvement with farson and, and the rest of the the gang and now they're stuck with it like they were walking walking in what they there's like a what is it you step in and I, I guess stepping in shit. There Too you big go. That's, for their britches? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I I used to have a series of uh, good um, euphemisms to throw out there, but they've long since escaped me, and I would have to go memorize them again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of ironic that she's screaming about peeing in his bed when the whole premise of what Jonas is up to right now is trying to uh capitalize on the morning of thor <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe that's why the papes like shut it down bitch <laughs> like mm. this is a secret we care about thor um <laughs> yeah I-, I will say this there's something very very unnerving about Rhea being set loose from her little corner of the world having her more central to the the action not only seems to, I mean, basically puts people in greater peril because they have more proximity to her, mm-hmm. but also it just feels like it's kind of unleashed something in her where she, you know, was much more quietly, uh, all of her internal dialogue is now external, <laughs> which is, it's really, it's, gr- it's a great mental picture. Like if you imagine that this was on a, in a, in a movie or a TV show, it, it's really very cinematic and really creepy, but for our characters, it feels extremely ominous that she's this beast has been unleashed. And I there's something we'll talk about a little bit later, too, about how these chapter this chapter really does kind of in some ways rhyme with our very first chapter. And one of those things is Susan hiding on the side of the road to, to hoping to avoid the coffin hunters, uh, which is something that she was thinking about in the first very first chapter she was introduced in. Huh. So, oh yeah, when Roland comes comes rolling up on her. Comes rolling up on her. Yeah. I mean, it's on the same road and uh yeah, there's a lot of coming full circle in this chapter. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um yeah, so then Susan lets them ride off, uh, feels safe that they're gone. Um I also mentioned that panic bit. There's the bird bird thing again. Yeah. Um, yeah. underlined with mm-hmm. her mind going panic. And that one I I wanted to double back around again just because one of the things when they mentioned the bird not being able to escape, it it sort of felt like she was reliving the moment when Rhea hypnotized her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and like kind of got into her brain and just took her over. Yeah. And I mean, the you fear of that sort of thing happened again. Yeah, you can see the impact and the tra- of the trauma that she experienced when she met Rhea that you know, she was terrified for a second when she thought Cord was her aunt, or her aunt was Rhea, but then being confronted with the real Rhea, it really, it does the reverse, you know, instead of calming her, it repanics her. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So then she hops on her horse, um, rides to the Love Shack. Oh, that's, yeah. That's what I'm gonna call it now, is the Love Shack. I uh, like where her it. Roland <laughs> used to, like, spend some time, um... 
And, you know, Making we noted babies. we noted earlier that uh, uh, one set of guns was missing from uh, the barquet where the boys were staying. And that's because they're in the love shack. And so Susan gets to the love shack, looks around, realizes that she's ravenous, hungry, eats some ant covered food. Yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> as some stale bread and then like grabs the guns and rolls them up the same way Roland did in, in the pack behind her saddle and makes a plan to go save Roland and the gang instead of uh, escaping back to Gilead with these uh, with these uh, almost gunslinger guns, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this is when um, we've talked about in the past where Susan sort of um, is her own gunslinger-ish. You can see there there is something to her character that you could almost yep. see if she, instead of being raised in this super sexist uh, backwoods town that maybe there would, there is a bit of the gunslinger about her. Yeah. And she, I mean, mm-hmm. to actually make this plan to, to get some guns, like that's a, that's a pretty good move for her. Yeah. And, I mean, for someone who's totally untrained, like yeah. th- something that she does here is she hides his guns in her bedroll the same way that Roland did. And it just sort of struck me that she's emulating Roland, but she doesn't have the training Roland does. And that's where I get into this idea of her not recognizing the danger she's in. But you're right. There is also another aspect of this that she's able to like logically plot out a, pl- you know, like this is how I'm going to get these guys out. And she, she does. Well, well you couldn't have even imagined Susan, uh, Susan being no. this person at the beginning of no. yeah. this. And now it's developed to such a, a point where not only is she in love, but she has a, you know, a kid on the way and she's going to go like rescue people. Yeah. Yeah. Susan is, Susan is a badass in this chapter. I had really warmed to her this reading, but like the, and this chapter really kind of drove home to me. Like what, the potential of Susan as a person and yeah, definitely the loss of potential that will happen when she, I mean, I'm trying to really avoid spoilers, but I feel like we all know she's going to die. So (laughs) that's the premise (laughs) of the book. So I'm just going to quit pussyfooting around this, but yeah, when she dies, it's going to be really tragic because not only it was essentially set up to be tragic at first because she's Roland's love interest, but, and obviously now she's pregnant. That is another layer of it, but, really it's tragic because it's the loss of Susan as opposed to the loss of Roland's first love, you know? And I think you really see that in this chapter. Yeah. This is where like it actually culminates. Um, Mm -hmm. So we have that moment where Susan's sort of like uh, contemplating the guns and everything. And then Stephen King does what he loves to do and changes scenes on us. He does enjoy that. Although this scene is really freaky. yeah, this is dark too. So um, yeah. so we cut to uh, Fran Langle. He, uh, he's like kind of called a a meeting to order, but not quite called a meeting to order. Um, Thorin's uh, sister uh, basically like did a lot of the footwork on this. Yeah, a little whisper campaign at the Traveler's Rest. Yep, and, like, sort of got everybody to spread the word and then, like, made it sound like she was up for preparations to, you know, bury Thorin, but, like, that's not really what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it, it turns out that she, they basically put uh, Fran up to this, like, 
task of saying that they caught the boys. Mm-hmm. And then he's even gone as far as to plant a dude, you yeah. know, up in the rows to be like, did they confess? And he's like, oh, yeah, they confessed everything and they're proud of it. They're proud of it? And the whispers mm-hmm. go through the crowd. Mm-hmm. And, like, the, he doesn't, the story he tells doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, it has like a vaguely hangs around the fact that the boys were about to go steal, uh, some horses and that, um, Reimer caught wind of it. And then (laughs) he was afraid that Thorin may have been told as well since they report to him. Mm -hmm. And it's like, "That, that doesn't make any sense. Right. But no one's looking for sense right now. They're just looking for, uh, vengeance for this tragedy. Yeah. or travesty or whatever and, mm-hmm. and so the crowd like the way Stephen King paints this like he basically tells the crowd he doesn't say that they're going to do anything to him he just says you know we've canceled these events that are normally done for reap night you know all the there fun won't be ones any... are done yeah yeah we won't be doing any like hacky sack runs or uh <laughs> you know uh, uh bird dipping i don't know whatever they do down there the necessary ones will have to continue, you know, like you'll still have to go auction off sheep and, and pick out cows and stuff like that. But the, the fun stuff's over. And at the end of the night, we will still burn the stuffy guys, you know? Yeah. Right. And it's like, he left it at that. And yeah. he, he, you could feel almost like he's like, this is a stupid story and it doesn't make any sense. Someone's going to ask me a question. I'm prepared for it. I can answer this. And like, mm-hmm. everybody's just like, Makes sense to me. Right. And, and then the topper is like, as Stephen King describes the crowd dispersing. Yeah. They all silently wander to the bar, mm-hmm. not to talk, not to enjoy the things that you normally do when you go to the bar, like games or gambling or mm-hmm. interaction with your friends, but to sit quietly and drink. Yep. And like that, that's dark. Oh, then Yeah. And on top of that, when he describes the stuffy guy burning, he also kind of like Stephen King goes off on this little side rant about how mm-hmm. the ancient gods are still sometimes worshipped, you know, back in the hills mm-hmm. <laughs> occasionally. And everybody knows what this means, so there's no need to explain it. Yeah. And that just takes it to the next level of like basically the whole town is ready to see, you know, a burning. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have I pulled the quote because it's really good. There were old ways, old rites, which the right handed stuffy guys were only one surviving remnant. There were los ceremoniosos, charyu tree. It had been generations since they had been practiced, except every once and again in the secret places out in the hills. But sometimes when the world moved on, it came back to where it had been. Yeah, that's dark. Yeah, this scene's great because we see how easy it is to take panic and manipulate it into action. In this case, it's meant to return the townspeople to a way of thinking and behaving that calls back to a more superstitious and brutal past, something that is outside of the civilized behavior that now and instead takes this really violent plan of action and makes it not only feel inevitable, but righteous to this crowd. I mean, you could say it's like uh, the man in black showing it up at an old village. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry. That's just so bad. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. Anyway, I'm sorry. We'll I didn't. I don't no, no, get no. No, no. I mean, <laughs> we'll get there. All right. So, I mean, 
I, I like this idea that sometimes the world, when the world moves on, it, it returns to where it's been. Basically, that progress is not necessarily inevitable. That when you let fear guide you, that the inevitability is that you're actually going to take a step back. And I feel like this is King talking about the fragile veneer of civility, as well as his thoughts on mob mentality. And they are pretty, I mean, we're living in a time where this feels very painfully accurate. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, yeah. People up. Yes, definitely. And the the stuff about the townspeople just walking to the bar. I'm glad that you talked about that. This procession almost, right? Like the, they talk about this being a ceremonio. Um, and so there's almost this procession that takes place after the meeting, after they separate, where they have this unspoken agreement. No oh. one's talking. No one's having to prevent someone from just running up to the unguarded jail. That's because... The group think has already set in. There is no need for communication because they are all one unified murderous flock, which is kind of an unwritten bird metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so the moment where all of these crowds are heading to the two bars in town and like walking by the jail, uh, Stephen King makes the point that this crowd is large enough that they could easily just take oh, them yeah. now. But right. instead, they there's sort of a uh, it almost implies a longing for burning someone alive yeah almost to the point and when you mentioned that that sort of uh veneer of civility yeah it sort of remember how popular it was well we don't remember but if you've ever read books like when they would do hangings or oh, yeah. de uh decapitations in uh -huh. the squares in england like oh, yeah People bring sandwiches, everybody sit down, there's cheers and joy, mm -hmm. kids played in the streets. And that's the feel you get from this. Like, if we if we were to just take care of them now, justly, that would be um, a, a loss right. of spectacle. And, like, it, would, it wouldn't be as, as good as, you know, burning these people in front of an entire crowd. What Lingle does so well here is he... Superimposes, superimposes the need for vengeance with the need for justice. Yeah. So it, it allows them to validate whatever they're going to do next. And then it's rooted in some sort of historical ceremony that as a community, they had moved away from, you know, how long ago did it say? Um, generations. They had moved away from it generations ago, but it's, so easily they can slip back into that mentality if given the right. I mean, also you have to remember that in the previous chapter, we talked about how there's been this growing sense of unease in Hambry. Like something feels off. They can feel a change is coming. Bloodshed is around the corner. And I think that that feeling of unease that everybody has has really primed them for being able to get into this state of mind. And this is sort of the first domino that is following towards that prediction that we have from king that bloodshed is coming to this town and that it would all start here like i think this is what we're experiencing with this and this meeting with fran lingle is the first domino to falling mm -hmm. yeah, yeah definitely mm -hmm. <laughs> take a moment let that sink in let it yeah. sink on in <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Uh, i know i was almost waiting for like a little did she know somewhere little, in here right King does enjoy using that particular uh, uh, narrative device. Yeah. 
that's funny. Um, all right, so we cut back to Susan. Um, she's heading up towards the barquet to uh, enact her plan, uh, which is basically to go get some of the guy's clothing and get dressed up. And as she's heading that direction, she sees a bunch of horses, like hundreds of horses, like 400-ish horses yeah. being horses let out. she'd ever seen. Yeah, out on, you know, out off the drop. And, like, she, like, talks about in her head, oh, these horses probably think they're just being put away for the winter, but they're heading the wrong direction, and they're just following, following the leader. And, and that moment cements it in her mind that, um, while even though Roland had explained that they're probably planning on taking the horses to Farson to support his war, uh, she could only sort of imagine it, but seeing it made it actually hit home that mm-hmm. that's what literally is going on. And it's funny because the plot that had just been described a little bit before was that Roland and the gang were out to get all these horses. Mm-hmm. And now they're just like casually leading them away from town. You know, it's all projection, right? Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. And and so Susan rolls off to the barquet. She gets there. Looks like they basically didn't even take any time to cover back up the hole where he'd pulled the guns out. Uh, finds some of their clothes, gathers it together. Has this moment where she sort of like longs to smell Roland's sleeping cot. <laughs> Yeah, oh my god, she's such a teenager. I know, you're just like, and she's like, no, uh, time is short, I gotta go, I gotta do this. Yep, yep. And like, also like has a moment too where she sort of thinks about the night that we just had before where she finally sort of got accepted into the quartet Mm -hmm. and now it's in shambles again and people are being, you know, people are jailed and um, who knows where Shimi's at and she's asunder and people are dead and it's like what's going on here and that gives her the fortitude to like hurry up and get out of there and head back towards the traveler's rest so you got a couple stars here did i miss anything uh yeah so one of the things she does here it's actually not to get the clothes it's to get the firecrackers oh yeah that's right too she does the the barrels off you're right yes so she goes there and as she she finds them and it turns out that there are actually still some firecrackers in there which is great she grabs a bunch of them and but in the process she gets more ashes that they had put on the barrels to hide them on her i think on her hands and maybe on her her dress or something and instead of cleaning her hands she's like screw it and she says like let the ashes stay and do their worst which is not great because what she's essentially doing is challenging fate, challenging Ka. And, you know, that's never a really great idea, especially in the context of the story where we just watched what the results of what happens when you think that you can bend Ka to your will or that your love trumps the will of Ka, right? We just watched <laughs> all of that on, on you know, on all that happened was Roland and, you know, to the point where he was completely checked out until it was essentially too late. And so when Susan is sitting here going like, you know, do your worst fate, she's essentially tempting fate. And uh, that's, a, that, that's not great. The other thing that adds to the ominousness of this is that she, as she is going through the house, she keeps hearing her aunt's curse and it's haunting yep. her. It's almost become like a refrain in her head. And and those two things combined, like, come on, girl. <laughs> Do not throw caution to the wind and tempt fate and 
Ka has a way of like it just got you off the road in time for you to avoid the big coffin hunters, but don't make the mistake of thinking that you can bend Ka to your don't don't you know don't test it. So. Every time they like referenced uh, uh, Aunt Cord and the ashes, I, uh-huh. I I hearkened back to that uh, moment in I think it's the Christmas story where it's like you'll shoot your right eye out, kid. Yes, exactly. And then what does he do? He shoots his eye out. Yeah, That's and then a that perfect dialogue example. where he's like, "And I did it. I shot my eye out. Oh my gosh!" <laughs> Susan rolls in, rolls back into town, and uh, um, heads towards. The Traveler's Rest, and there she finds Shimi already, like, sort of ready to go, hiding in the shadows. He's got his horse all packed up and and set up, and they have this weird conversation, and uh, Susan basically is like, I've known a lot of dumb people, and (laughs) while Shimi may not be, you know, the smart person, he definitely makes those people look stupid. Yeah, I loved this detail where you know, she recognizes that she may, in the same way that she is totally under, like they're under, what's the word I'm looking for? Not underappreciated or underrated. They're underestimated. Underestimated. Yes. Like she me, Susan is underestimated. Yes. Yeah, I can imagine someone listening to the podcast right now is just screaming at the, oh, 100%. At, at the air like, underestimated, you fools. Oh, my God. Totally. I mean, I know I do that when I listen to other people's podcasts. I'm like, how can you be such an idiot? And then I get on my podcast and I'm like, what's that word? Oh, the. Yes. The. the. To he. <laughs> to he. No, it's the. <laughs> exactly. I swear I could read a minute ago. I swear I could read. <laughs> um, so Shimi and, uh, and Susan kind of plather for a bit um she sort of explains to shimi that if he is willing to help her with this plan that he will have to leave mm-hmm. hambury forever yeah. and the cuteness of shimi is that <laughs> I'll, I'll get to see tall buildings and yeah. princesses and princes and far off lands and castles <laughs> mm-hmm. and susan just lets him go and there's that's the the description I got hearkened back to when I was at the spoiler zone at the beginning is when he, they walk up or and you first see Shimi, it's like a tall man with a boy's face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that description just like sort of underlines the smartness and dumbness that we see with Shimi here where like his emotional smartness is excellent, but yeah. his, intellectual. his intellectual smartness yeah. is just not there. Yeah, I, I love, I actually think there's some really great subtle writing in here too, where she's like, you know, if we, if we fail, they're going to kill us. And he's like, yep. And she, instead of arguing, he's just like, yeah, Cappy's ready to go. Cappy's also, you know, he's settled and ready to go. And that's all the answer he really has to give. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I kind of, in the scene, I wondered if my first thought was like, oh, does this mean that he actually has the touch? Because he seems to know she's coming and the way, you know, he just knows things that he should know. But then I thought about how Cotet has a telepathic link. Yeah. And so maybe what that's telling us here is that Shimi is a part of this Cotet, that he shares the same telepathic link that, you know, Roland and Susan and, or Susanna and Eddie and Jake have. It's the same thing where he he knows that Susan's coming and he know, essentially knows what the plan is going to be and that he needs to have Cappy ready to go because he is a full-fledged member of the Cotet. 
See, for me, I was actually thinking more along the lines of um, even without being a, a smart guy, uh, he really loves, um, you know, Keith Burt, who saved his yes. life. And best so, friend, Arthur Heath. <laughs> yep. And so the, probably the the only thing you would really think of and dwell on is like, these guys are good people. They saved me. I need to save them. Yeah, the only thing is, is there is a part about, I'm trying to get to see here, what what section are we in? And I may have missed it. There may have been like a, here's the smoking gun. It's when he comes out of the shadows and surprises her. And she says, how did you know to be here? Yeah, and he says, like, I've been waiting for you. And she said, why? And he said, I knew you'd come. She's like, open mouth. How did you know? Same way I knew you'd be coming, Susan Sia. I just knew. Yep. So I do think that there is either we're going to presume that he has the touch or the shine or whatever, or he has content or all of the above. <laughs> but I don't know. I just <laughs> thought it was a, it was an interesting moment. And I, I think that interpretation was. once you uh, underline that, I completely remember that. I was like, oh, yep, you're right. I'm wrong. That's a <laughs> that, that is 100 percent correct. Um, but that... I do think you're right. He also has a high emotional intelligence. Yeah, because and we knew that from earlier when he was able to keep Susan's secrets and when he was able to recognize the situation with Cord and knew to be quiet. And when he yep. talked to Thoral or Coral and he complimented her, he has high in emotional intelligence. And that's yeah, part definitely. of why they're fools to underestimate Shimi because he's no dummy. Oh, I, love I mean. Shimi. Anyone I'm worried can... about Shimi. I don't remember what happens to Shimi. I don't remember either. <laughs> I'm really nervous for Shimi. <laughs> I mean, uh, it may or may not be good. Uh, oh, well, I mean, Susan... he's not with Roland now, so yeah. that's not good. Uh, well, that's true. Maybe he's reincarnated as uh, um, as the Jar Jar Binks. No. <laughs> See, that's like a throwback throwback. That goes yeah. way back. So many levels deep. That's for the that's for the true Kastikoff fans. <laughs> no, all right, all right, all right. So um so basically her plan is to dress up as a, a cowboy. And I think there's a fancy term they use for cowboy. It's like a Spanish term. Vaqueros. Um, vaqueros, yeah, there you go. And so she dresses up as a vaquero and like kind of baggy and dirty and heads to the sheriff's office and <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, the other secret sauce is that she's got that box full of fireworks, mm-hmm. and Shimi's out back uh, popping fireworks. Yep. And so that distraction, like, already, like, kind of throws things off. Um, you, you also got the deputy trying to play the guitar. <laughs> deputy and, Dave. And, yes, uh, deputy and Dave. Keith Burt sort of, like, making fun of him for his bad playing and, like, we'll confess to anything. Just stop singing. It's so bad. Yeah, Burt's going to Burt no matter what. <laughs> yep. And, and so, like, it's like, what are you doing? You're you're poking the poking the bear there, man. Yep. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I guess him. if you're already sentenced to death, like, you're going to get there. Might as well have some another, fun. Right? Talk some shit on the way out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then Roland kind of paints a scene of him in the in this uh jail cell and one of the one one interesting things besides uh keith burt making fun of the guy's guitar playing is that roland is laying on his side but the moment that susan comes in in this disguise 
He sits mm-hmm. up as though he was like ready to sit up at any time. Yep. And that that actually was where I was going to start leaning on ye old psychic powers. It's the Kotek connection, I'm telling yep, you. Right? Yeah. And, and so uh, apparently um, they were expecting someone. So we've we've got Deputy Dave and the sheriff in there. And, and Avery's just had like a big meal, I guess. Like I imagine him sort of like farting and burping and yeah. just being kind of like a disgusting guy. And Dave yeah. trying to play the guitar while like secretly thinking in the back of his head that one day this will be his office and mm-hmm. he'll be the sheriff and he'll do way better than this guy. And so yeah. that that juxtaposition that, that Stephen King is painting is that like one guy is sort of a corrupt doofus. Well, he's sitting there imagining how he's going to brag about his role in this, you know, epic. Yep quest for justice that he's close enough to the conspiracy to know is bullshit at their framing innocent teenage boys <laughs> but he's yeah. gonna go bragged his brother's hot wife about his role in all of it and then you got deputy dave over there like my duty i must do my duty to the yep, town exactly. i feel weird about this yeah yeah and so the juxtaposition between those is like one corrupt guy and one guy who's like justice is justice yeah. justice justice time yeah and so so that weird situation ends up like basically escalating as Susan walks in, they were expecting um, someone to be like relief or whatever for them for the evening. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't turn out to be that relief. Um, instead, she uses. I mean, their like, shift is about to end, but yeah. not the way they think. <laughs> well, she, so it's funny. Like I almost imagine like a home alone esque, um, you know, uh, partner, you know, get out of my house, partner. <laughs> right. I love the like deep voice that she tries to do. <laughs> yeah, but she rolls into this deep voice and then like pulls the guns, but she's not very good with these guns. So they're kind of like wobbling about. Mm-hmm. And Dave um, instinctively goes into like almost police action mode. Yeah. Whereas Avery like duck and covers. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so dave tries to like talk to her while also easing open the top drawer of his desk to pull out these guns and they maybe they're not the best guns but like guns a gun in a gunfight mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and roland sort of like cues her in and 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 says something and she fires the gun the gun report in the room is just so loud and crazy that it's deafening for the people inside. Yeah. But thankfully the fireworks are going off outside mm-hmm. and you know, sometimes there's loud fireworks. Sometimes they're quiet and you don't Big know bangers. which one's which. Yeah. And so yep. hopefully that didn't alert anybody to the action that's going on in here. So the, the struggle continues. Susan ends up basically uh, blowing a hole in Dave, which mm-hmm. really hits her hard. Um, there's a moment where she's even describing how it's a small hole going in, but going yeah. out, it's like this big, charred, nasty mm-hmm. hole. And Dave's not much older than her. And the shock of that, like leaves her with her guard down and Avery sort of sneaks in, grabs her by the legs, but then he gets shocked too. when he realizes that he's grabbed a girl, <laughs> which is super weird. And then they struggle and, and I wasn't quite expecting this. Like I knew I should should have been because I've read this before. But he literally, she literally shoots him in the head, and it's just gore yeah. everywhere. And then he falls into her lap. Yeah, I love <laughs> Stephen King's gift for the uh, understatement. 
the mess was considerable. <laughs> no <laughs> shit. <laughs> she literally stuck the gun underneath his chin and blew the top of his head off. Yeah, and and then on top of that, like she was so close to the report of the gun that like it started her serape on fire. <laughs> yes, yes. I God, man, we almost had this on screen bums me out you know because this was that that amazon series was supposed to be an adaptation of this book we almost got susan lightner serape on fire oh yeah that uh, actually <sighs> this is like a pretty epic scene and so yes. she's on fire rolling like screams you know for your father's sake and she runs and grabs like a, a big stein of beer or whatever and like basically just dumps it on her shirt to put the fire out mm-hmm. and this is back to your metaphors for ashes thing again yeah because like she said ashes do your worst and her aunt said your love will be in in flames and like now she's literally on fire on fire yeah as she goes to rescue these guys yeah like the basically the point of no return she lights herself on fire and the other weird thing and like i wanted to jump back to this really quick when she's thinking um horrified about dave she also like harkens back to a time when they made out i think she remembers growing up with him, and she's like, I may have kissed him once behind old hooky. Okay, okay. I okay. was surprised about how young Dave was. I was thinking he was quite a bit older than Susan, but I guess not. He's like, she's 16, so he's like 17 or 18. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that in this chapter, all of a sudden we get this divide between avery and deputy dave because i kind of had always lumped them together i almost feel like all this detail about him wanting to you know do his duty and blah 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 really just sort of exists to create emotional stakes for susan in the aftermath of this so that there's like you know sort of a sense of tragedy when susan kills him what also makes you kind of care about him as a character more than you would have otherwise because you find out that it's not that he's unjust it's that he's blinded by justice yeah i just thought it was weird when it came so late i'm i am fine with it but i just was like wait a minute what and i guess maybe that's the point is like roland or king wants you to kind of question your ideas of who these people are so that it complicates the narrative when Mm -hmm. it's not just good versus evil it's like light gray versus dark gray (laughs) you know I, yeah, which I true. which I appreciate, but I just thought it was interesting that like at the last minute, all of a sudden we're hearing about De- Deputy Dave as a child and how he wasn't a hair puller. I'm just like, what? Where did this come from? He's been, you know, <laughs> Barney Fife through this whole thing, and now all of a sudden he's a stand-up dude. What the hell? Where did that come from? Well, and then uh, this may just have been some of like internal Susan uh, dramatics, but she also is like um, ultimate sacrifice for my love. You know? <laughs> oh yes. Yep, yep, and yep. you're like, yeah, yeah, and then like that's funny because not too far back, Aunt Cord was like, "And you'll marry with goblets full of blood that you'll be drinking of your enemies." Yeah. Oh my God, she is a nutcase. Yeah, and <sighs> just, but yeah. um, you have a couple stars. Did I miss anything in here? Because like, I... Uh, we covered most of it. I do want to talk about something at the end here, which is just that we close out this chapter very much how we started it in Susan's head. Uh, in susan in a lot of danger that she's not totally prepared for in a situation where she has stuck out her neck uh for roland and the gang versus how she had with miguel and almost gotten run over that luck isn't going to hold out forever (laughs) and presumably Mm -hmm. that's because specifically because the choices that she's made and as 
is tradition in this book we close out the chapter with a reference to the moon oh yeah yeah that's right yes. uh, so, staring like, up at the demon moon yes susan sees roland hand and when he squeezed she squeezed back and she looked up at the demon moon its wicked face now draining from choleric red orange to silver she thought that when she had pulled the trigger on poor dear the poor Ernest dave hollis she had paid for her love with the dearest currency of all paid with her soul if he left her now aunt's curse would be fulfilled and only ashes would remain so it's the return to this motif throughout the entire chapter about the ashes and we talked about the ways that the moon represents thematically things that are happening in the chapter and what we close out here is basically that this bloody moon has now gone uh because it's essentially been drawn at this point and it is now just the color of ash hmm yeah that's it's kind of creepy yeah (laughs) yeah oh wow but yeah this is uh, this is an interesting chapter uh lots of good susan stuff lots of good shimi stuff like we said they're totally underestimated because of sexism um yeah i don't know discrimination basically i i I liked it overall um it's an actiony chapter i thought this was for you so the problem the problem is is like and i've feel bad doing this but i basically lumped in that last description like four subsections uh-huh. into one and, right. and so this has like a weird peak and valley thing where okay. you get a ton really fast yeah and then it sort of drops off and then you just get a ton really fast again yeah it, and so i liked it but i almost wish that pacing wise we would have got a little bit more of the um of the announcement of, you know, them killing them and the bar scenes and like the way people were reacting. Uh-huh. I, I felt like I was like kind of ripped off a little bit with that. Oh, interesting. And then, well, well so wish it was a little more drawn out. The yeah, fight. exactly. Mm. And same thing with the Rhea and her like rolling around in the cart. Like that's Ooh. super cool, but you could have given us like, I don't know, three or four more pages of like everybody reacting and being like, fuck. <laughs> and yeah. instead we just got like bam there's Rhea okay bye and then we got like bam there's Shimi okay bye and then we got like <laughs> bam there's Aunt Cord crazy incident okay bye and you're like, damn it damn it Stephen King y- you spent so much effing time on all these other chapters drawing out things that could have been uh, one, I see what you're saying. one like shot is too slow and then the time yeah. where it's like give me the stuff and I want all the deets yo <laughs> you just are like bam 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 done <laughs> and, and i know that's a weird take because i normally i'm just like yes action thank you uh because the action is really good in here but yeah there's so many high points that we could have really expanded on and it's sort of your movie that's fair. complaint that's fair. like y- you you read this chapter and you're like man i would love to see that on screen well yeah. what are you basically saying like i would love some more details please <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's true. Yeah, I, I'm. I did actually enjoy this chapter because I felt like it just whipped by. Uh, there was some good symbolism in it. There was some really great characterization with Shimi and with Susan, and that really helped me invest in them. And I thought that yeah, I, I liked that Susan got an action scene. I wasn't expecting Susan of all people to get an action scene in this. You know these. This book is very macho in comparison to, in some ways, not totally because it's also like a huge love story, but Mm -hmm. maybe because the setting of Hambury is so chauvinistic. So to get to see Susan turn that on its head and have an opportunity to really use that against, 
people was very satisfying. I also thought there were a couple of really genuinely chilling scenes, you know, with Cordelia and and with Rhea going by that. Yeah, I really liked this chapter. I do see what you mean as you're talking about it, that there's been like this very slow, precise buildup for chapters on chapters on chapters of the tension building, 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 building. Mm -hmm. Um, And then this kind of went boom. And I kind of feel like it's almost like the little dip when you get to the top of a roller coaster and then there's the little dip and then you drop. I feel oh, like yeah, this, yeah. this was the little dip and we're about to drop is the my feeling dip. because there's still quite a book bit of book left. Um, we're not like in the final chapter of the book. And I know some of it is going to take place back in Kansas with Susanna and Roland, but there's still quite a bit left in Hambry. So my hope is maybe we'll get some more action that lingers in a way that's a little more satisfying. But overall, I liked this chapter quite a bit. Yeah, my opinion was thumbs up. All right. So for those of you at home who are playing along, we are going to be covering on the next episode, Wizard and Glass Part 3 Come Reap Chapter 9, The Reaping, Sections 1 through 11. So this is a really long chapter, so we're going to break it in half. So the first half, half, because yeah, DJ, it's like two hours long. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, so that's why I'm like, you're gonna get some action. <laughs> yeah, my my peanut brain only has so much uh, uh, cold storage for this yeah. sort of thing. And my ADD cannot do <laughs> that much note taking. I'll go crazy. So yeah, so we're gonna break it in half, sections one through eleven. All right, connections to Stephen King universe, none that I caught, but again, always if I miss something, I want to know. Drop me a line. Let me know at castofcodzombiegirls.com or over on our Facebook page, which leads me to our next section, one of my very favorite sections in the show, with our Facebook group question. So this time, because I was just so in love with Shimi in this chapter, it got me thinking about how great Stephen King's side characters are in this. I mean, honestly, the side characters in this series are better written and more complex and interesting and lovable or hateable than main characters in a lot of other books. <laughs> so I wanted to know who your favorite Dark Tower side character is. Now, DJ, or do you have one off the top of your head? Um, My favorite side character? Yeah. Like, it's I tough, don't know, does, right? Well, so I always liked Blaine, but... Yeah. But he's, he's not really a side character. He's like a full-on regular character, right? Uh, I think you could say he's a side character because he only really sticks around for... For one book. So, like, the main characters to me are Roland, Susanna, Eddie, Jake. Yeah, I guess if... Susan? There's some really... Like, so, I'm torn between gangsters and and Blaine. Uh Like, in Eddie's world, there's some, like... Yeah. (laughs) Pretty, like, I want to know about that guy characters Mm -hmm. that just, like, pop up for a gunfight and naked Eddie and then, like, disappear again. Yeah. And you're like, damn, I wouldn't mind following that guy around for a little while. So some of those guys are also like on my radar. But mm-hmm. I think Blaine, I would, if there was a side character that I want, would put it as a pedestal. It's like every time someone posts a creepy train in a chat, you're like, Blaine. Yeah, Blaine. totally, totally. I mean, geez, I'm like so guilty of that because yeah, he's so iconic. How can you not? Yeah, and every time you see Charlie the Choo Choo, you're just like Blaine, Blaine. And like the kids' books, oh, and everything, even the like, what's that weird? Um, it's a weird kids' show where like every vehicle has a round face that's like plushy mm-hmm. that talks. It's like Blaine, 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 ah, Blaine. <laughs> Are you talking about Thomas the Tank? 
Thomas is it train? Thomas the Tank Engine or some Thomas the Train? Thomas the Train. Yeah, they I all have like this weird circle face. Yeah, they're really creepy, and it's like sort of like if it's sort of puppety in the middle yeah. of it. Like, the stuff we like when we're kids is so creepy. All right, so what about for, you? Okay, so for me, like my first thought was like, "Oi, definitely Oi," but no, he's not a side character. He's part of the quartet, so no. Um, so for me, I think it's probably my two favorite side characters, and this may change because I don't remember a lot of the later books. But my two favorite characters are Shimi and Cuthbert. Okay, for sure, I love them. And Susan—I mean, Susan—is kind of riding the cusp of main character, but I do love her a lot. Okay, so I asked the listeners, and they had a lot of really great answers. Some of the characters I remember. Some of them I do not. <laughs> so you'll have to forgive me if I'm just like, sure, bro. But I probably will agree with you when I get to that book. All right. So Sheldon says his favorite side character is Ted Brodigan and Sheeny uh, get a tie with Dinky Earnshaw getting an honorable mention. So obviously I know Sheeny, So agree there. I don't remember Ted Brodigan. Do you? No. Is, is that like one of the Stranger Thing guys or something? No, I think he's going to be a later book character. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Same thing with Dinky Arnshaw, I think. Both of these names are, like, totally sound familiar. And it could be just because they sound exactly like a Stephen King character. You know what I mean? Like, because he has a very very particular style in the way that he names characters, and they sound extremely Stephen King. But they also just sound familiar. So I'm going to take your word for it. He said, Dinky did not hold back when voicing his disdain for the contempt for the individuals running Devar Toy. Okay, so yes, this is definitely a later book character. All right. Sean says, I've always got a kick out of Gasher. (laughs) (laughs) Twist. He was terrible, but amusing. You know what, Sean? You're not wrong. He's terrible, but he's such a character. A child molesting murder. I'm not saying I want to hang out with him or would let him babysit my cats. I'm just saying as far as entertainment value, I think there's lots there, especially when you picture Willem Dafoe playing him. Oh, yeah, it's the same spectacle as, like, um, uh, put the lotion on or you get the hose again. Yeah, there's some Buffalo Bill vibes there, for sure. (laughs) All right, so Tim says Zoltan the Raven and his owner Brown in The Gunslinger. Gotta love a bird that cracks wise and spews profanity and scatological rhymes about beans. That's actually a really cool dive. I I almost, like, had forgotten that character yeah sorry continue that's uh, no so no you're totally right i i hadn't it hadn't even occurred to me but he does play such a pivotal kind of potentially pivotal role yeah if you take a larger view i'm skirting up against spoilers but i'm not gonna go into it okay <laughs> um i also enjoy jane doring don't remember who that is oh the flight attendant who notices eddie's eyes changing on the plane i just love that part of the book agree yeah that is I could not have told you her name to save my life, but that is a great scene. Um, semi-spoiler stuff ahead. Okay, so for those spoiler-adverse, this may be spoiler territory we're entering in here. As far as side characters that played into the story more prominently, I have to echo Sheldon in naming Ted Brodigan and throw in Patrick Danville, Dandello, and our beloved Pear Callahan. I almost disqualify him since his role was pretty extensive. Also, that's... Um, mm-hmm. That's a really big spoiler. <laughs> so I'm going to stop there and be like, 
Sure. <laughs> For those of you who, uh, yeah, let's just not risk spoiling. Go, that. go read this. The Facebook. It page is a very and... polarizing character that are, that uh, shows up in Song of Susanna. I'm sure you can probably figure it out if you've read the books. Um, I don't know how I feel about that. That's one of the things I want to find out. As we read through the second time. So Tim also said, I asked my friend who's currently reading the series for the first time. Oh, that's cool. And has read through the wastelands. His response, Shardick the bear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Solid answer. <laughs> uh, John has a, has a great answer. And I'm a little ashamed of myself that he said it. And I didn't. His favorite side character is Susan. Oh, yeah. Fair enough. I mean, especially after this chapter. She's so great. I'm surprised uh, no one picked Oi. Well, I think he he's part of the main quartet. So he's not really a side character. John says, for me, it's Father Callahan because Salem's Lot was the first book that I read by Stephen King. It was great to see what happened to him after he was made to drink Barlow's blood. Oh, spoilers for, <laughs> for Salem's <laughs> Lot. Oops. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> okay. Garrett says, Court has always been my fa- uh, a favorite for me. He is put in such a harsh light as is necessary, but when it comes down to it, he knows he knows he has to be. He had a heart of gold and would die for those boys. You know, that's kind of true. Like, because we just hear of him being so abusive to them, it's hard not, it's, it's a little bit harder to have a, a soft spot for him. But considering what the boys end up facing once they get out in the world, he did actually do a lot to prepare them for what they were up against. I mean, not completely, but the world that he's training them for is like, you gotta be hard, right? Well, it's sort of that thing where, uh, I don't know if you've ever taken a class where they call them like washout classes. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of the class is to be really hard. Yeah. So that only the folks that are dedicated to whatever they're learning remain in the class and everybody just drops out and goes on to other classes. Yeah. Um, and so like Cork or Cork is like that. He, his thing is that he treats you horribly and makes you suffer to go through this training. But if you succeed, then you are a peer and an equal, not a, a trainee anymore. Yeah. And you I see that relationship right. with like Roland where like once Roland vested him, he's like, now it's, he's no longer like you maggot yeah. get on your knees. It's like, let me give you. Uh, man-to-man advice yeah i think you're totally right <sighs> these fucking books okay so <laughs> david hicks has spoilers for future books so i'm not going to say why this character is his favorite but his favorite I- side character is john callum john callum yeah he's that... from the last two books so you won't remember him probably okay yeah but we'll, worry, we'll get there and we'll have lots of opinions about him soon enough okay <laughs> let's see here craig says Thinking Aunt Cord. Whoa, this is a twist. I love to hate her. She and Aunt Petunia from Harry Potter would get along great. (laughs) (laughs) You are correct, sir. Holy shit. (laughs) Fandom crossover. Okay, Brenda says, Eddie and Jake are my faves, hands down, but I would consider them main characters. Always a member of their quartet, too. So, sidekick-wise, of the folks we've met so far, I would have to say Shimi, and a close second is Rhea. Oh, oh. Interesting. Tell me more. Okay, she says, reasons for loving Shimi is obvious. Rhea is such an interesting and totally messed up person. Some of the best laughs in this book are from watching what Rhea gets up to. 
<laughs> I like Brenda's dark sense of humor. Um, and come on, the dead snake around her neck and that cackle, she is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's a great villain. There's no question about it. I, this book is just stacked with great villains if you think about it. We've got Rhea, we've got Jonas, we've got Cord, we've got Coral. We had Reimer and Thorne, <laughs> although they were probably the weakest of the bunch. And the Man in Black, like, scooting around and farcing, potentially. This book is stacked with villains. Yeah, of yeah, high you're quality. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, this was great. These were really interesting. Did they sway you, or was there anyone that you're like, dang, I should have picked that person? I mean, uh, going back to the very first dude in The Crow. Yeah, it's pretty like, good. You're like, Zoltan, man, that's a good one. I think you... You beat everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you win, sir. <laughs> yeah, that one's like, because, yeah, I can't talk about it. But, but we'll talk hey. about it at some point. Someday we'll get to a place where we can talk about it. And uh, I look forward to that day. All right. Cool. So thank you, everybody, who answered the questions. We love hearing from you guys. We love hearing your opinions. Some of these really surprised us. Um, so so that was really fun. If you haven't already joined the Facebook group, you should so that you can join in in these conversations that we have before every show. And also, I love all the people that are posting various things. Like somebody posted a really awesome casting suggestion uh, in the Facebook group this week that I was like, well, pfft. There you go. That's it. We're done. Case closed. <laughs> um, and just a, like really cool. Someone had like a first edition of the gunslinger that they posted. It, it was, it's really cool. So definitely join the Facebook group if you haven't already and hang out with us. All right. <laughs> He'll turn from that joyful, fun conversation. Let's finish talking about the stand. Are you ready? <laughs> Yeah, we're already running super late for our game, so let's try to do this quick. Okay. Okay, so final episode. Episode 9, The Circle Closes. Now, this has some of the ending from the original book, but it has been added to in order to give Franny some closure that the neither version of the original stand book uh, had. Something Stephen King always regretted. So we basically get the last temptation of Franny in this section. <laughs> All right. And essentially we get the episode that I have been waiting the entire season for once it doesn't matter anymore, which is an episode about Franny where she actually gets to have some internal life beyond being pregnant. Oh, and man. some people like the, the chick everybody wants, like that's really who she's been relegated to in this story. So it would have been nice if we could have gotten this earlier. All right. Anyways, I'm already complaining and I haven't even started to review. I'm the worst. Okay. All right. So in this, let me give you, I'm going to go through the synopsis a couple, like a section at a, at a time. And I just want to get your thoughts as we go through. Okay. All right. So episode opens. Franny gives birth to a girl who she names, of course, Abigail after the one and only mother Abigail. The, uh, after the baby is born, everybody's hoping that the baby will be immune, but she quickly becomes infected with Captain Tripp's. However, unlike anybody else who has contracted it, she recovers. And more babies are, are born in Boulder who are immune to the disease, so I guess we're done with Captain Trips now. Stu, Tom, and Kojak eventually return to Boulder, and Stu and Franny reunite and do some smooching. Thoughts? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah so like fran's like sort of disjointedly pushing around her baby and not even 
like almost seeming like standoffish to her own kid. Mm-hmm. And then like she's standing in a crowd having like a little bit of a panic attack. And then he just rolls in with like uh, a big stick under his arm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then they make out and then everything's good. And immediately she's like, now I want to go see the ocean. <laughs> and you're like, the what? Yeah. Girl, wait, what? You just did all this stuff to like save the world. And like, now you're like, nope, I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. So several months later, they decide that they're going to leave Boulder, as you suggested. And they take Kojak with them. They have a tearful goodbye with Tom. They couldn't have taken Tom. What the hell? You should have taken Tom. But whatever. M-O-N. That spells no Tom. (laughs) So they're going to go back to Franny's hometown in Maine. And they're passing through Nebraska. Of course they are. uh uh I was like trying to look up and see if the town that they go through is the one from Children of the Corn. It's not. I didn't catch it fast enough, but that didn't sound like a real Nebraska town. (laughs) No? Okay. Fair enough. So they end up staying at this old, creepy, abandoned house in the midst of a cornfield, which is why, of course, I looked up Children of the Corn. Uh, But I guess that's just commonplace in Nebraska, right? Everybody has a cornfield in their backyard. I know that is not an assumption that is legit. Okay. All right. Whatever. There are giant cornfields, but most people don't live close to them because bugs and tractors and dust and And all the alien circles and yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. So turns out that this particular cornfield is being watched over by a mysterious young girl. And while Stu is gone um, to a nearby town to get stuff, including bottles of water. Getting bottles of water. Franny decides to uh, investigate a well on the property, which is old and rotten and obviously a bad idea because water is coming in bottle form soon. Uh, Ends up falling down the well, is injured, and uh, is confronted by the spirit of Randall Flagg. Yeah. um, So the dog tries to warn her, like, Kojak. 20 times that this is a stupid idea to go like why does no one listen to kojak on the and, and then on top of that like oh i just got this one sip it's fresh well lady first of all you don't you don't drink from a farm well like that without any kind of filtering there's not like it's not safe people put all kinds of stuff in the in the corn oh right it's probably and that goes in the water so like yeah it can taste as fresh as you want it to but that doesn't mean it's not high in lead or something yeah, you feed that to your baby. Where have you lived? Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe they don't have a lot of farms in Maine. They must, though, right? I don't know. Uh, well, yeah, the like crab farm, you know, they go yeah. on the <laughs> <laughs> Although to be fair, I I probably wouldn't. It would never even occur to me because I grew up a, like not near farms. Maybe oh, especially an open top well, because uh, so normally in the Midwest, if you have a well that's safe to drink out of, it'll be a it'll just be a hole in the ground with like a siphon pump at the bottom or something like that, uh-huh. where when, you, when you're pumping it, you're pumping it down from the aquifer. And the way that works is like sand basically has a lot of surface area and it cleans the water. Uh-huh. So then that water is usually safe but high in, in metals. Yeah. So it has a really fresh, crisp, weird taste to it that you can't put your finger on. It's always better than regular water. Yeah. But it's probably not super awesome for you. But then an open top well like that, you saw the holes, right? Yeah. So that just goes, that's a pipe that just goes down the middle of a well. 
and right. the water can have anything in it because it's open top. So your deer falls in there, your cat falls in there, no. your rats go running around in there. Like yeah. that's a awesome way to get any number of Jardia or whatever other waterborne pathogens you can think of. <laughs> Cause yeah. like it literally just faces up and rain goes down there. All kinds of crap. Like, no, yeah. don't do that. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah, he has a fixation on wells. I'm, as you're saying this, I'm realizing wells feature prominently in like multiple stories by Stephen King. Yeah, that's why that's people about... um, always got so sick in these like big communities because they just like took a bucket and dropped it down a hole and then pulled water back up. And it's like, well, okay, as long as nothing gets thrown down there or falls in there or climbs yeah. down there or whatever, it does. That water is all contaminated, not just part of it. Ugh, gross. Hence, poisoning the well. Yes. So. Franny wakes up in a jungle where Flag shows her a village of people who have been uninfected by the super flu and offers to heal her and return her daughter because I guess her daughter's gone missing or something. I don't know. No, no, no. Uh, So her daughter is alone. And if Franny doesn't get up and take care of her, then she will die. And he alludes to the fact that Stu is like going to end up crashing or not getting there in time or something like that. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Sorry. I watched this like two weeks ago. Oh, no, no problem. Um, Yeah, so basically that he will fix all the problems she's facing right now if she agrees to just maybe let him peek through her eyes once in a while. And And a kiss. And a kiss. And she kind of tricks him, but then bites him and then runs away. And she runs into another cornfield and encounters the spirit of Mother Abigail, who profiles, profiles, Prophecies? Prophecies? No, that's not a um, word. Uh, it's a pr- prolificates. <laughs> so who tells her she's going to be the mother to five <laughs> children? Uh, okay, so what do you think about this? I think it's proselytize, isn't it? No, I don't think so. That's like more or is that to like yeah. tell someone to not be here? I think it's prophesizes. Prophesizes. Sizers. I think that's right. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. So uh, she doesn't kiss him. She bites him. Mother Abigail, bam. Okay. And then you get the, like, A-B that baby Mother Abigail and regular Mother Abigail are, like, one and the same. Yeah. Mm. So, okay, I'm going to say something good here. I do think that these scenes are effectively build some tension. Like, this is the most tense that this show has been since the first episode. Even though I'm like, get off the frickin' wall, dumbass. It is effectively tense when she's trying to get the water and um Stu's trying to reach her and he gets a flat tire and the thing almost falls on him like there's some actual real tension here plus you don't know right away what the story is with the girl out in the cornfield so it could be bad you know what I mean it's kind of played in a way that she seems a little sinister so there is some effective tension building in this section Mm-hmm. I also am interested in the concept of people who are cut off from society having an advantage where they are have no contact with Captain Trip, so they survive, which is sort of a tri- twist on the real world where because they don't have immunity and stupid colonizers are constantly genociding people with their germs. Uh, it was kind of a nice idea that like they inherited the earth. So that's a cool concept. I don't like what the show does with it at all, but I do think it's an interesting concept. 
Um, uh, so one of the, one of the things about that, that I thought they were trying to do is not just that they're, um, isolated from the rest of the world, but they're also isolated from the ideology of the rest of the world. Yeah. Because the whole feeling that we got through this, this version of the stand is like, you know, good versus evil, God versus Satan, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you're completely isolated from that world, you're not just isolated from the disease, but you're also isolated from the religious aspects of Mm -hmm. that. So then you almost are under like a third authority. Yeah. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Okay, so she wakes up. Or, uh, yeah, she wakes up in the bottom of the well. Stu has made it back there. He rescues her with the help of the girl that was in the in the cornfield. She helps him winch her out, and then magically heals her. Stephen King. Stephen back King. To yep. Stephen yep. King. Like. Oh, uh- this is a problematic trope that he lo- like much like well <laughs> he likes to dip back into this problematic trope and he decides not only is he going to do it once with Mother Abigail but he's going to double dip. <laughs> I was just like, "Come on, man." <sighs> what did you think of all this? It's definitely a weird cliche. And then like to to basically like have her predict it and like the prediction is like yeah young me will come save you like that's also real funky and then you know not to even explain it any more than that and then she just like disappears and everybody's happy and like doesn't even seem to notice that she's gone and like also <laughs> you know uh mother abigail being like and you'll have seven sons and they'll have seven sons and you know yeah and like it was almost like um a line right out of the bible and i just kind of like eye rolled a little bit and then it will <laughs> repopulate maine in no time you know or like connecticut will be full of us yeah, yeah but no i mean isn't date. that like the, the thing about like i mean isn't there a degree of incest that required yeah don't you um, want to see where there's a population center where you can like grow the gene pool with people who you know presumably have the genetics to make it more likely that your next generations will have um immunity to captain trips but also have other genes (laughs) so there is actually like i'm not making this up you can go google this there is an app for folks that are in iceland because the island is so small and segregated, yeah. or in, mm-hmm. um, segregated from the rest of society that they're they it's have books that say like I begot so and so begot so and so begot so and so, and they're able to just like type someone else's name in and find out because you may not even know or realize because of the yeah. isolation from one side of the island to the other that this girl or boy that you met in the bar might be like your second cousin twice removed and have enough genetics in in common with you to uh yeah. uh cause a problem so yeah uh, you know th- th- that doesn't change in, in future with um people surviving the flu like you, these two are going to make a bunch of kids and they're all going to live together in this crazy like uh, bleeders society <laughs> right <laughs> i can't believe how many times bleeders has been referenced on this one <laughs> it's really a shocking number <laughs> All right, final section. Uh, In the Jungle Flag, taking on the new appearance and name, uh, Russell Faraday, another RF name, he appears floating before the tribe. 
He kills one of their warriors with his dark magic and demands their worship. The tribe falls to their knees. Oh. Listen, I understand that this is actually the, the ending from the book. I, yeah. Yeah, I do know that. I just figure if you're, like, rewriting it, like... Maybe you didn't shy away from that bit. I will say, though, the effect when he does the little gun finger and, like, shoots the guy is cool. Yeah, I, I was not expecting it to be that, like gruesome you're like oh look it's episode one and two version of the stand <laughs> yeah i thought like for a second he was just gonna turn the arrow back around or something and right. instead he's just like Chaboof. yeah like now worship me and then he starts floating and you're like yeah here we go again Ooh. <laughs> i mean i i get that he's a bad guy you know I wish there was a little more critique around that. Whatever. Whatever. Well, it is what it is. Maybe you don't reveal that, like, that's the the hatch out before you get to the hatch out. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, you don't bring it up in the dream and be like, or, you know, look at this society over here that is completely isolated from this. And then, like, show up there. Like, give it, give it some room to breathe, buddy. Yeah. All right. We have completed the stand. Any final thoughts? I'm sorry. Oh. I'm a, no, okay. so it, I I stand by my claims from earlier. Like, yeah. if this was probably two to three episodes away from being excellent. Yeah. And I would even, like, this in stuff, I would totally forgive it if, like, they had spent a bunch more time developing all of these characters that we wanted to see on the screen for more than a second before they yeah. were killed Mm. and we didn't get that so the payoff for a lot of these major bits is not there because you never really cared enough about the characters to feel like it's payoff and that frustration like floats on to the end and leaves a bad taste in your mouth when even when they're like hey and we're gonna give you something new you've never seen before like okay cool Uh, but you're haven't had enough character building of the the last two important characters right i mean Franny doesn't get her episode till the end yeah (laughs) and like and her husband like you barely get anything with him other than some like moments where they're deciding as a council like what to do he just like plays it straight and and, see you're not even like on the you're not on the edge of your seat for these guys um and, and then even randall flag like doesn't get a ton of development so like at the end here you don't even feel like super threatened no by him at all it's just like a weird aside and then like warlock dude yep exactly he doesn't feel like the antichrist he feels just like yeah like slightly more evil david blaine (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, i think this is this is a case of high highs and low lows you know and so the ultimate result is kind of eh, it had some really great stuff really cool things i'm glad i got to see on screen really great opening um and then just some some real real bummers And, and probably the biggest bummer is like you said lack of characterization so yeah, I feel like it was okay. It wasn't the worst thing I ever saw. I've seen some yeah. way worse adaptations of Stephen King for sure. Dark Tower. I mean, but I guess the question is, would you go back and rewatch this? No. I might watch a part or two to show someone. Like, I think the Captain Trip stuff at the beginning is really well done. 
But would I sit down and watch nine hours of this? No. I think I'd, I'd just create a highlight reel of Harold. Right. Like, I will say. This is what it could have been. I have become like an Owen Teague super fan as a result of it. That like maybe that's the takeaway. I watched this other movie called The Empty Man the other day, and he has this teeny tiny little part in it. But I was like, oh, I know that guy. <laughs> just because I really like that actor now. All right, cool. Well, next up, I think our next big adaptation is going to be The Talisman. So, or no, I guess maybe Lisey's story. So maybe we'll do that in in the bonus episodes coming up. Um, we'll see. Extended sections. Okay. All right. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this. I'm sorry if we were a bummer. We had to be honest about our feelings, but obviously I don't take any joy in being negative about stuff. I actually love to love things. So hopefully it wasn't too much of a downer to listen to, but maybe it was, and you want to vent. Maybe you want to review our review of the podcast, whatever the case may be, drop us a line at castofcottzombiegirls.com, or you can come chat with us over on the Facebook group. You can leave us, a, if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for something to watch tonight, want something spooky, check out our video on demand calendar on the zombie girls website. If you're a nerd and you like video games, come watch our Twitch channel at twitch.tv forward slash zombie girls. If you want to represent and look super freaking fly in the process, we have merch at T public check out tpublic.com forward slash zombie dash girls dot podcast dash podcast. Um, there's for every podcast on the network we have merch for but let's face it the cast of caught is the coolest one and if you really love us and want to support us and want to hear all of our bonus content of which there is quite a bit check out our <laughs> patreon at patreon.com forward slash zombie girls for instance today we on our extended episode because all of the episodes of, the, of our podcast are extended for patrons we're going to be talking about weird westerns the ones we love the ones we need to see all that stuff I don't know. You you sent me down this rabbit hole of like all the weird stuff I used to watch as a kid. Uh-huh. And like I'm going back and seeing all of these amazing weird um live action and cartoon shows from like the late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. Like, do you remember Inside Out Boy? Inside Out Boy, no. Uh, so like it had the dude from like uh i don't, I don't think that's the uh, exact name but it had the dude that played captain kangaroo oh my god that and then this creepy. like younger dude with like a curly hair that wore like an inside out bodysuit oh my god i'm looking and at pictures that, of it that turned into like a uh a claymation thing where like an inside out guy would like wander around and and like they would use it to explain organs and parts of your body Man, that's I'm okay again. Confirming my original statement that the shit we watched as kid is kids is super creepy. Oh yeah, and then the banana splits. Uh, yeah, forgot about those guys. They're super creepy. Uh-huh. HR Puffin stuff. <gasps> it's all oh. nightmare. Oh my god, banana splits is terrifying. Yes, yes, yes. And HR then Puffin stuff. Oh my, let's check this out. If you go, oh my god! No wonder we're all whore nerds. Look at what <laughs> we grew up on. <laughs> well, and then if you go the other route, like um, there were a bunch of weird Nickelodeon ones back in the yeah in I didn't the have early nineties. Up you the PBS stuff I can I remember, but the anything that was like on cable pff, that was for rich kids, not for me. <laughs> Man. Do you remember? Okay, we got to wrap up, but 
Oh yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna give you something to look up after the podcast. Look up the Mummin shots, sh- Mummin shots on the Muppet Show. I'm gonna put it in the chat because it's weird. To, it's like a tough thing to spell. But mm-hmm. look this up later on if you want to see creepy shit that we watched as kids. Matilda reminded me of this recently. Um, oh, they God. were these weird like Eastern block mimes that did really interpretive performance art i guess you would describe it as and it is terrifying so enjoy that for use at ho- you at home as well if you haven't thought about the moment shots for a while you're welcome i don't All think right. i've ever seen this this is crazy okay <laughs> are you looking at the claymation face thing yeah this is <laughs> they were like yeah this is perfect content for children <laughs> this definitely of course won't. it is they love this sort of thing <laughs> All right. murder children dj where else can we find you on the internet Oh, if you uh, swing over to deadlander.com, you can uh, check us out on the Deadlander podcast. And I don't know if you can find episodes of the uh, Splattercast anymore, but we were the longest running horror theme podcast on the internet. So no there you boss, go. No my friend. No boss. Never going to take that title away from us until 20 years later. Uh, <laughs> uh, otherwise, um, that's about it. I uh, occasionally sell some stuff on Etsy at Muffin Spank. You can also uh, swing over to YouTube and watch old, now outdated training videos of me teaching kids how to film from the early aughts to early 2010 time. So there's... Uh, millions of views of that stuff floating around for you to watch as well as some music training videos so that's about it rachel did you already mention every every place we can find you uh you can find me on all of the episodes all of the podcasts on our network which are the stream queens the zombie girls and uh more deadly and right now i think it's the first episode is out now of the mini series that myself and mars from stream queens are doing a crossover with Here's Johnny on the Saw franchise. The first episode is out. We have recorded more than that because I have now seen four Saw movies. Oh, no. You're getting into that, like, slog section where they kind of, like, lose their budget for a while. It is getting rough, my friend. So, yeah, but the episodes themselves are really fun. So definitely check out Here's Johnny for more content from myself and Mars. And that is where you can find me on the internet. DJ, take us out as i stare at these men in black suits and (laughs) white faces the horror in my heart burns as i fear for the children that grew up watching this and their psychiatric well-being so keep that in mind as you imagine susan wiping ashes off of her shirt (laughs) bye everybody Thanks, everybody, for listening, and to my co-host, DJ, for making me laugh and for indulging all of my tinfoil hat conspiracies. Production on this episode was done by yours truly. Our theme song for the show was created by DJ. 